everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Bavarian Podcast Works. This is Chuck Smith, and this might be the second time you've heard me in the last 24 hours. I did do the Bayern Munich VfB Stuttgart preview show, so I hope you all got a chance to listen to that. Uh, if not, make sure that you do. I, I would uh, really appreciate it if you did. Uh, but now I'm here to bring you the weekend warm-up, which is, of course, BFW's show, where we go over all the biggest news of the week. As always, there's so much to talk about with Bayern Munich, and it's not just the games. It's everything that's happening off the field as well. And of course, there is never a dull moment. So why don't we get right into it? And we'll go with our normal format of the five things that we learned this week. And we've got some pretty good topics uh, on tap. But what we're going to start out with is we've learned that coaching is getting more and more difficult every year. As Thomas Tuchel and Domenico Tedesco found out this week, both managers were sacked. Tuchel, of course, a Champions League winning manager at Chelsea, was let go. And Tedesco, who had turned around RB Leipzig last season, uh, was also let go. So it was it was not good for either of those two. But I will say this, uh, both coaches have a track record of making an immediate impact upon being hired. Uh, Tuchel, it it has pretty much been the story of his career that when he enters a new club, he's able to go in, work with his tactics, get through to the players, and draw something good out of them. Uh, Unfortunately for him, it appears that his personality is so grating and that he tinkers so much that he can never get that consistency and that efficiency that he needs. And when you have a personality like he does, uh, it doesn't lend itself to people wanting to keep you around. Uh, he's a, he is a bit grating. And as we saw at Dortmund, uh, he famously feuded with Mats Hummels there. We saw at PSG where the locker room turned on him. And now Chelsea, where he was unable to get through to that mess of a roster that they have. Um, you know, it's just unfortunate for him. And I think He's a good coach, but I think he has to learn a little bit better how to deal with other people, uh, players included in that. As for Tedesco, uh, this was kind of not unexpected if you've been around BFW. Uh, Tedesco did make a good impact last season at Leipzig, and I think that uh, it was a time where they needed someone like him to come in and just right the ship. But now they are at a point with this particular squad where they need to excel and they just weren't doing that. And one of the things that I thought stood out from the comments at RB Leipzig during the press conference where they let Tedesco go and they announced the hiring of Marco Rosa, um, the brand of football they were playing was not appealing to the higher ups at RB Leipzig. And I think that's, Probably part of it. It was not as fluid as I think we are used to seeing our Bay Leipzig squads look. But I also think Tedesco is not good at dealing with personalities. And over the course of time on that Leipzig team, there are some big name players, some big egos. And you brought Timo Werner back into the mix. And all of a sudden, you had this conundrum where you had all of these attackers. And then Tedesco had to find a way to make it all work. And he clearly was not going to be able to do that. So bringing in Marco Rosa, it, it, it could it go one of two ways uh, here for Leipzig. Either Rosa can come in and he can do 
what he did at Gladback, which is draw the most out of his players, get them to buy into a system, and then hopefully be able to push them to success. Or he's going to do what he did at Dortmund, which was not get through to push all the wrong buttons and get an early exit. This is not an ideal situation for RB Leipzig. Not that it's Bayern Munich's problem, but you do like to see that the other Bundesliga clubs, particularly those that are in the Champions League, uh, be on a pathway to success. And it does not look like Leipzig right now uh, has enough together to really be able to to get you know off on the right track. So they've got some sorting out to do there. And, and when we talk about coaches and we talk about the difficulty that they're having and not just drawing the best out of their players, but working with the sporting directors to get the right players in. You have to look at Jurgen Klopp as well at Liverpool because he went from being essentially the toast of England, the toast of Europe, someone that had really just gone in and done so many great things at Liverpool to now someone that doesn't look like he can push all of the right buttons. And sure, when you lose Sadio Mane, that's a big hurt. But he absolutely is still a good coach. But his time at Liverpool, uh, and I'd have to really talk to Tom Adams about this, given his background as a Liverpool fan, his time at Liverpool could be coming to an end just because it might be a case where he's been there too long, that his messaging and his tactics are not quite reaching the players. And the point of talking about all this with Tuchel and Tedesco and Klopp is that it is becoming increasingly hard for coaches to win over locker rooms and then maintain the relationship with those locker rooms. And that's where, when you go back to what Hansi Flick was able to do and how he was not only able to control that locker room of huge egos, but get the best out of them. It's why someone like that, I felt, even though he was widely lauded, was still a bit underappreciated to be able to do that. Tuchel himself is a great coach. He is a great tactician. He cannot relate to players. Tedesco has a has a unique ability to go in, switch things up, and see change, but he can't maintain it. He can't build off of what he starts. He can't continue to work with players and build relationships and make it a partnership rather than a coach-player relationship. Klopp, he's amazing. He's done such a good job wherever he's been, but even a mastermind like Klopp, someone who has been able to win over players, win over fan bases, win over executives, it's even become increasingly hard for him to be able to maintain doing his job at a top level because quite simply the messaging for today's player gets old. And it's it's really a shame because I do feel like we're going to see more and more turnover every year. And it's going to be very difficult for clubs to really maintain that club focus where it's about the sum rather than the parts, because there's going to be so much change in messaging from year to year. There's going to be so many different ideas and tactics being thrown at the players. It's going to make players more and more distrustful. Now, I don't think the players should get off on this because I feel like part of the reason why some of these coaches haven't been able to sustain uh, really a, a job at some clubs is that the players are exceedingly more difficult. They make more money. They are more entitled. They have bigger egos. All of these things play into how they respond to coaching, how they react if they are not chosen or selected for a, a starting 11. It's very, very difficult. 
And I don't envy a lot of these coaches as much as I would like their paychecks and love to be able to be in a position to do that job. It's not easy. And what we've seen with Julian Nagelsmann, and this is where it all ties back to, he is now starting to hear some complaining about roles on the squad and playing time. And that's an issue that we've been chatting about here on this podcast for weeks, because when you have a roster this talented and you have all of this talent, they want to play. They want to be on the field. You've got a team full of alphas and you're automatically making a handful of them betas every week because they want to be on the field and he cannot use them. So that is one of the stories that will be dropping after this post goes out for this podcast. Uh, you'll see that coming. It was a report from Sport One's Kerry Howe, and it's not damning by any means, but it's the first cracks in the foundation of this season are starting to show a little bit if this report was true, because it was players like Musiala and Gnabry and Gravenberg and Mizrawi were, were reportedly not happy. And of course we already know, and this is, a topic we'll get into in just a little bit that Leon Goretzka is also ready to start and not keen on being a bench player any longer. So yes, indeed coaching these days while it pays well and you have a high profile, there are a lot of not fun aspects to it. So uh, we'll, we'll keep an eye on where things end up with Tuchel and Tedesco and where they go from here and also with Klopp and, and what happens with him, because if they can't turn this thing around at Liverpool soon, even though he's got such a good track record and he's built up such a good standard there, you know how ownership is. You know how executives are. They have a very itchy trigger, trigger finger when it comes to coaches and managers and hoping to fire them early to turn a season around. So I'm not saying Klopp's going to get fired, but if they continue to have uneven performances, it could be very difficult for him. And as for Nagelsmann, it's not going to get any easier for him with all of this going on. And if players truly do indeed want more playing time and are starting to get irritated, his job's going to get very, very hard very soon. The next thing that we learned this week is that, yeah, we just talked about it. Leon Goretzka, he wants to start. But what do you do because Marcel Sabitzer has been great? I mean, what we know is that Joshua Kimmich is rarely ever going to come off the field. That's just the way he is. And I've always theorized that I think most managers are afraid to keep him off the field because he will completely unravel and probably run through the locker room wall like the Kool-Aid man if he's not in the starting 11. So Kimmich, I think you can always mark down as probably being a starter even when he can uh, can no longer run. Even when he needs a rest, Kimmich will always be out there. But right now, Marcel Sabitzer has been really, really good. And I totally get that Leon Goretzka wants to start. He was the starter. He just got a long-term contract. He is on the team's leadership council. I'm sure he feels that he should just be able to go right back out once he's healthy and fit enough. And it does appear right now that he has worked his way back from his injury, that he has gotten his fitness right back up, and that he is physically ready to start. But what we'll see against Stuttgart and what we'll see against FC Barcelona is going to be very interesting because what will Nagelsmann do? Will he 
integrate Goretzka back in the starting 11, being that box-to-box presence that's so electric in working in the final third, but someone that can also be a big physical presence in the midfield? Or will he go with Sabitzer, who has been nothing short of steady, and he has been excellent in just about every aspect of his game? And one of the primary reasons he's been so good is because he's lessened what he's needed to do. He's no longer going out there and trying to do everything and be the same player he was at Leipzig. He's sitting back a little. He's allowing Joshua Kimmich to play more of an offensive role. And he's just been a steady, steady presence in that central midfield by doing less, but doing it extremely effectively. And I think it's working for him. Where Nagelsmann goes with these two, I don't know. I mean, what I would assume is we'll see each of them start one of these two games, but what will it be? Will Goretzka get to start against Stuttgart so he so Nagelsmann can take a look at him over an extended period and see where he's at? Or will he start Sabitzer once again against Stuttgart and aim to play Goretzka from the outset against Barcelona? <sighs> we talked so much in the opening segment there about why coaching is so difficult. And, and this is a good example of it because I don't know what you do in the situation, to be honest. I mean, I get it. And I understand that a lot of fans right now are saying like, it's gotta be Sabitzer. He's been the man. He's been so good. You stick with him. And I totally get that part of it, but there's also a big segment out there of the fan base. And this is kind of shocking to me that, it seems like they've just forgotten how good Leon Goretzka is and what he brings to the table. And to me, this is a very difficult situation. And even going back to when Sabitzer came in, I wasn't sure why he wanted to make the move to Bayern Munich aside of his childhood allegiances because he was just roadblocked. And then when you add in Ryan Gravenberg into the mix, who by all accounts has been very good in in training, he's been good in his limited appearances, but what's his pathway for playing time? I mean, if you've got Kimmich and Goretzka and Sabitzer as those top three, there's little to no playing time left for a kid like Ravenberg, who probably needs more field time than he's getting. So it'll be, to me, very intriguing to see how happy he stays. And of course, as referenced earlier, he was one of the players that was supposedly not very happy about his role on the squad. So whatever the case, Nagelsmann is going to be tested this weekend. He's going to be tested against FC Barcelona next week. Who will he go with? I think right now, if I was him, I would probably start Goretzka against Stuttgart. And I would tell Goretzka before the match, listen, we're going to give you Stuttgart. You're going to start. You're going to play the whole way. You're going to start against Barcelona on the bench, whether you like it or not. We're going to keep you rested. We're going to keep you coming along slowly because we need you for the entirety of the season. And I'd tell him, like, sure, we will get you in at the 60-minute mark, 70-minute mark, whatever against Barcelona. We're going to get you some time, but we don't want to tax you too much because you have stockpiled some injuries over the past few seasons, and you're that important to us. Now, would that fly for Goretzka? Probably not, but I think it's I think it's the best pathway forward for Nagelsmann with this situation. So, yes, I'd start Goretzka against Stuttgart. I'd start Sabitzer against Barcelona. I'd have a quick trigger no matter who who starts if I was Nagelsmann because I'd really want to be able to have the options to pull in Sabitzer or pull in Goretzka depending on who starts um, off the bench in case the other player was struggling in the starting lineup. So 
Um, for me, I think that's how I would go. Goretzka's on Saturday, Sabitzer against Barca, but we'll see. Maybe I'm right. Probably not. But uh, that's how I would go about it if I was the manager. And I'm sure all of you are thanking your high heavens that I am not the boss at Bayern Munich. <laughs> so speaking of that Barcelona match, the third thing that we learned this week is that that particular matchup is going to tell us a lot about where Bayern Munich is at this stage. For the opening weeks of the season, Bayern Munich was a juggernaut. They were rolling through everybody. The past couple of weeks, especially in the Bundesliga, the wheels have started to come off a little bit, not in terms of playing poorly, but there were some definite cracks in the foundation of how they were playing. Uh, Obviously, with so much team speed and playing in this 4-2-2 formation, Bayern Munich was going to be susceptible to teams that that were willing to pack it in and just seek out that one or two or three counterattacks per game. And as we saw with Gladbach, uh, Byron was not that efficient. They were not that effective in the final third. They generated a ton of shots, but were not as precise or as efficient as they needed to be. So that was problem number one, that even when they had done all the right things, they were having problems finishing and being efficient with their chances. Then last week, we saw the other end of the spectrum with Union Berlin, who packed it in clutched, grabbed, pulled, dragged down, whatever they had to do, they did it. They slowed down the game. They prevented Bayern from getting an absolute ton of chances. And they were happy to walk away with one point. Uh, What I think we're going to see from a lot of teams now is that exact kind of tactic, but not with Barcelona. They're too proud to play that way. And they just paid a lot of money for Robert Lewandowski. So why would you want to minimize what his contributions could be? So this match in particular to me is going to tell us a lot because we're going to see what happens when Bayern Munich slugs it out punch for punch with a very good team. And and I'm not one of these people that is anointing FC Barcelona as back or as a as a true threat for the champions. Like I don't think they're quite at that level yet. But if Lewandowski pleads, keeps playing well, if Usman Dembele can be that player who so many people think he is, think he is, and if that defense can can come together and solidify somehow, Barca could down the road be a candidate <laughs> to 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 be one of those final Champions League teams. But as of right now, Bayern I think is much better, but. Is Bayern going to go out and play the way they did those opening couple of weeks? Or will they be inefficient like they were against Gladbach? Or maybe not as precise like they were against Union Berlin? So this is a very fascinating matchup to me because I do think it's going to give us an indication about where this team is. And for Bayern Munich, I, I look at it and I'm like, what would I do if I was Nagelsmann in this game? Who would I start? Uh, you know, there are a lot of question marks there because he's trying to rotate key people fresh, but he's also trying to build up some type of partnership within the central midfield. He's trying to build up some partnership along the back line. And he's trying to get his attackers in sync because while they are all somewhat similar, they all have little different idiosyncrasies to their games that make them so unique, but then so tough to adapt to. (laughs) 
for their teammates. Uh, the way Coman plays is different than how Gnabry plays. The way Mane plays is different than how Sané plays. Musiala and Muller might be great together, but they're not the same type of player or even have the same type of characteristics that allow the other players to be able to seamlessly integrate and play with them. So this is the match. This is what's going to tell us where Byron is right now. So for all Byron fans, you have to be looking at this and you have to say the outcome of this is going to show where Byron is at at this stage and show us really, are they contenders or are they pretenders? Now, with Barca, obviously they're not at this stage anyway, Man City, they're not Real Madrid, but they are good enough to challenge Bayern. And with Lewandowski and his his knowledge of the Bayern defenders, of the team, of the manager, I think he's going to be able to exploit some things. Uh, I don't know how successful he'll be in doing that, but I think he's going to have a good idea. And if we've learned anything about Lewandowski over the years, if he has an idea on what he can do and what your weaknesses are and how he can defeat you, he's probably going to take advantage of that. So I'm personally going to pick Bayern Munich to come out on top of that game, and I'll have my pick in the weekend warm-up column. But I do feel like this is one of those matches that that fans are going to learn a lot from and if it goes sideways and, and Bayern struggles or they even if they lose, we're going to to see how the team reacts, how the manager reacts and, and and be able to dive into exactly why they failed or why they weren't able to be successful. So, it, it, you know, I'm really intrigued by that one. And, and I'm not necessarily going to look past Stuttgart. It almost makes me wonder if the team's going to be focused against Stuttgart enough in that hopefully they're not looking past uh, the Schwabians because <laughs> while Stuttgart is is lacking in attacking talent, if they pack it in and they make it a tough game uh, and they clutch and grab like Union Berlin did, who's to say that they couldn't steal a point too? So it'll be very interesting. But yes, I that Barca matchup because we're going to learn a lot about where this squad is. The fourth thing I learned this week is that Matthijs De Ligt and Luca Hernandez look great together. Uh, we got a chance to see them against Inter Milan. To me, this is the future of the back line. And naturally, you would ask, well, what does that mean for Dio Upamakano? Well, for this year, I think it means nothing because I think they have three good center backs. I think that they need to rotate to keep them all healthy. I think that it's a good idea to use the three center backs and rotate them and keep that flow going, get them all used to playing together, playing with one another, being able to switch interchangeably in and out. But when all said and done and the smoke clears from this season, I think that Nagelsmann's going to look at things. He's going to say, I'm going to ride Delict. I'm going to ride Hernandez. This is probably going to put Upa in a spot where he's not going to be a starter, where he might not be able to rotate regularly. And then we'll find out how he reacts to that, because I can't imagine that Upa Meccano at this stage of his career, being the age that he is, would be happy sitting behind two players who are fairly similar in age to him. So um, <laughs> it's one of the situations where it's it's a good problem to have in that you have so much talent there, but managing it. And that's really the theme of this show is how do managers how do they how do they take that work with it keep the players engaged keep them happy 
and, and continue on the pathway to being successful because I think everybody loves the big roster. Everybody loves a deep team until you have to deal with the day-to-day problems. So for me, DeLict and Hernandez, they look phenomenal. I think they are really, if Hernandez does go through with things and sign that deal that we've heard about, if he can do that, if DeLict and Hernandez can can play like they have been together and, and build up that relationship, I, I do think that that could be a, just a fantastic duo on the back line at center back for Bayern Munich for the immediate future. But there will be fallout. Uh, there absolutely will be fallout. And whatever happens with Upamakano, whatever he decides to do, I'd have a feeling that if Nagelsmann was leaning that way and if DeLict and Hernandez really did establish themselves, then Upamakano would probably look to move on. I can't see him sticking around next season. But for this year, hell, it's going to be great because you're going to have three good center backs at all times. And if Upamakano can avoid some of the some of those gaffes that we've seen him have in the past, I think that he's only going to get better. He's only going to prove himself more. And if he does have to go to market, it should at least at a minimum give Byron a, a good selling price for him. So, yeah, I mean, Upamakano went from being like the prize signing uh, just a couple of seasons ago to to now he could be the odd man out. So that's how football is these days. And when when Brazo had his eyes on Delict and Delict became available, didn't matter who Upamakano was. Uh, Byron was going to go out and get the lick and bring him in, and they weren't going to bring him here to be a substitute. So we will be keeping an eye on that story as well. But, of course, the fifth and final thing we learned this week is that, crazy enough, uh, Byron Munich and Harry Kane really might be something that happens in 2023. And I'm still having a lot of problems wrapping my head around this because I, listen, when Lewandowski initially left, Kane, of course, is a player that you would want. He's still young enough. He's super talented. He's got a proven track record. Why wouldn't you want him? Uh, And I wonder if Byron was able to bring in a player like him, if they would change the formation back up, maybe go back to a 4-2-3-1, something more traditional like that. Or is Nagelsmann married to this 4-2-2 or a 3-4-3 or 3-4-1-2 or 3-4-2-1, all of these different variations we've seen him use over the last couple of years. Uh, you know, what are Nagelsmann's thoughts if he were to bring in a player like that? I personally, when I look at this, part of me wants this to happen because I feel like Kane would be a good bridge until Byron gets its next striker. And we don't know if Mathis Tell is that player yet. Certainly shown that he has some talent. He's still very young. He could develop into being that player, but he's not going to be ready anytime soon. So if you get a player like Kane for two or three or four years, he could be that bridge until Tell is ready. But if Tell isn't ready, and maybe Tell doesn't live up to the expectations that many have for him, and and you know that is a possibility, uh, Kane could also be a bridge until Byron goes out and gets a striker of the future, maybe someone like Erling Haaland, (laughs) who you guys are all laughing right now because I must bring that up every week. But uh, I I do think at some point Bayern Munich will make another play for him, whether it's successful or not remains to be seen. But at some point down the road, that will be an option. So 
Kane could really fill that gap until Holland's contract with Man City starts to run down or until Tell is ready to take over. So there are a lot of options there. So I get it. Like it is very functional for Bayern Munich to get Harry Kane. Uh, one, he fulfills your superstar status. He gives you that striker, that true striker that you that you need. Right now, they don't have that. And I'll admit, watching this for triple two, I think at some point that this is going to get figured out. I do think they're going to miss having a true target man or a true, true striker in there that can really make things happen. It's not a knock on the guys that they have now. It's not a knock on Mane or Gnabry or Coman or Sané, whoever ends up fulfilling those roles, or Thomas Muller even. It's not a knock on those guys who are, are up there playing up top. But at some point, I do think you need that main man, whether it's Lewandowski or Erling Haaland. Those players make a difference. And Kane is in that echelon. I mean, when I look at the top strikers in the game, I look at Lewandowski, I look at Haaland, and then my third option is Kane. So for me, I get it. I think if Byron can can get it done and if Kane truly does want this move, it'll get done. A part of me questions whether Kane really wants to leave England. Part of me questions if he was just be using Byron as a leverage to get a bigger deal out of Tottenham or whoever else might be interested in him in England. I mean, sure, he would look great going to Manchester United, right? I mean, it probably never happened, but he would be the type of player that could instantly go there and start to turn that squad around, which seems impossible given the mess that they are at this point. But uh, what happens with Harry Kane? We're probably not going to know until maybe January. We'll start to hear some things, but I mean, as of right now, I guess I'm on board with it. I think I'm talking myself into it. I'm having trouble envisioning it. And that might be what's bothering me the most. Like I literally am having trouble envisioning Kane wearing the Byron uniform right now. I don't know if it's just so ingrained at me that he's always going to be with Tottenham or that it's just, he's been there for so long that you look and you just only picture him in a Tottenham uniform, but I'm just struggling with the visual itself. As far as how that would have, what the application would be on the team and on the field, I think Kane would be just fine. And I think he would fulfill a big role here. And I think he would do really, really well in the Bundesliga, obviously. So, um, it, it's going to be a lot of fun to follow this. I mean, Byron has not gone out of its way, really, other than Brazo issuing a half-assed statement that there's nothing to this story. I mean, we've had Oliver Kahn discussing it. We've had Brazo discussing it. We've had Nagelsmann discussing it. Everybody has pretty much talked about it who's who's worth their salt at Bayern Munich. So uh, to me, it at least looks like they're going to have some serious discussions I don't know if if Kane would make the move. I still am inclined to think that he's going to re-up with Spurs, but we'll see what happens with it. Either way, it's going to be a lot of fun, and I'm sure that by like mid-January or maybe even into February, we'll be uh, sick of the transfer rumors with Harry Kane, but it does appear that this is something that we're going to be dealing with after the new year and uh, maybe even into the summer. So we will be following that one for sure. As far as the entertainment portion of the show goes, ah, this is a tough one. I did want to mention something before I get into the house of the dragon, which I have a lot to say about, but I did want to mention this will be in the weekend warm up post this weekend. Um, 
there was a very vague tweet issued by the official Eastbound and Down Twitter account, which I am a super fan of that show where I, I just, I've loved that show from the minute it debuted. Uh, the comedy fit me. It's a little bit immature, a little bit raunchy, a little bit blue, obviously, but I always liked it because the characters were so over the top. They were so unrealistic And being a comedy about a guy trying to revive his baseball career. It really did hit, uh, struck a few nerves with me. So I, I really enjoyed it. The relationship between uh, Kenny Powers and Stevie Janowski is one of the all time best buddy relationships ever. I mean, Stevie Janowski, just the character himself is unbelievable. So many good uh, characters in the show and Kenny Powers is just a force to be reckoned with on screen. So I, uh, I'm hoping that that show comes back. I just hope they can do it right because man, it could go so wrong so quickly, just given how it all ended. And yeah, that probably fits the mold of another HBO show whose ending was a little bit rushed, maybe not the most well thought out, but it was still just a, a great show overall. And it, it always made me laugh. And that's what I, I kind of judge a comedy by. Do I have like a laugh out loud moment every show? And and with Eastbound and Down, I did. And it was very similar to, to me with Veep. I thought that show was tremendous. And every single episode, there was something, at least one thing where I like howled out loud. I was, I was so entertained by it and I laughed so hard, but uh, yeah, Eastbound and Down coming back would be awesome for me, but Let's get into the House of the Dragon. And I'm not going to just bend your ear forever on this one. But I will say this. There are some very good aspects to the show. I think there are some good dynamics in the Targaryen family that are working. Uh, the time hops are killing me. I'm not a person that struggles with this concept of time hops. But it is, it's too long. And the perfect example is this whole battle between the crab feeder and Daemon Targaryen. And why this lasted three years when there are dragons involved and all this stuff. It, it's total nonsense. Three-year time hop on that. There's no way, given what we know about this universe, I guess you want to call it, the Game of Thrones universe, the Song of Fire and Ice universe, however you want to define this. Um, it, that was just absurd. You have a dragon. You have a full army. And you can't beat a dude in a half a mask and a bunch of scab warriors. Uh, over a three-year span. It was ridiculous. I don't know, like, you know, listen, I'm going into this, and, and I was very skeptical because I felt like the way Game of Thrones ended, that any spinoff that they were going to have was going to be trapped with some of the same issues. Bad timing, not enough character development, not enough plot development, rushing to get to the exciting parts and then blowing the exciting parts. I did not come away from that episode too thrilled. What I did think was kind of cool was seeing Damon Targaryen make that crazy run through the fake surrender and then ripping through about 25 warriors and uh, eventually getting to the crab feeder. But even for a fantasy show, it was realistic. And one of the great things about Game of it was unrealistic. One of the uh, great things about Game of Thrones is that despite the fact it was fantasy, there was always some realism into the battle scenes. Like, good characters died. Important characters died. 
when the odds were against them, they did not survive. So this little thing with Damon Targaryen and doing this, while it was fun to watch at the moment, I don't know how this progresses the story other than to make it even more outlandish than I already thought it was. The political part of this is draining as well. I feel about as drained as the king does right now. Uh, it has kind of drug on. It is, it's too long. And there's not really enough happening. All we know right now is that Renera is pissed and she's resentful of her dad for essentially marrying her friend, which this whole, I can't even dive into all this, but um, the bottom line is we're not getting the deepness or the depth that we got with Game of Thrones, where in those first few seasons, you really came out of every episode thinking about things and and wondering where the plot was going to go and, and, and thinking about the characters and how they were interacting and what their next move might be. It was really like a puzzle that you got to play as you watched each episode. This is too rushed. This has too many time ops. And this, even for a fantasy show that has dragons, is borderline unrealistic just because of the established tone of the Game of Thrones universe. Uh, I'm struggling with it a little bit. I'm going to stick it out. When I start a show like this, I will all, almost always follow it through for a season. And I do like enough of it. I don't want to crush it because I do think there are some very good aspects to it. Uh, but I do think there are a lot of red flags right now about how this is being handled. And again, this is probably subject matter that was going to be very tough to handle. It was going to be very tough to capture in, in an hour a week, especially when you're talking about years and years of show already happening. I think we're three episodes in So the third episode. I can't even remember, but we're like three years into it already or whatever. It's, it's too, too much is happening. Like, too much time is going by and not enough is happening. Like I was under the impression the King had some kind of illness or sickness or disease. Right. But all of a sudden he has one episode, he has maggots eating dead skin off his hand. And then there's no mention of anything at all in the next episode. So it's, it's been a little tough. I'm sticking with it. I do enjoy some of it. Um, But too many red flags right now. I'm hoping that they can fix some of that and really right the ship. Uh, it, it's still, to me, the subject matter was going to be very difficult for the writers to make successful in this format. So I'm hoping that they, they've they done it. I'm hoping that the end of this season uh, feels like a payoff rather than a grind. So we'll see what happens there. And that'll about do it for this week's edition of the Weekend Warm-Up Podcast. I appreciate you guys tuning in. I know this is a lot right now in terms of podcasts. We're trying to keep up with everything uh, with the preview shows, the post-game shows, our flagship, uh, where there's a little bit of a different audience for each of those. We're trying to keep all of those going. When we can, we do consolidate some of the previews just because it makes sense. And it gets tough on the listeners to have to feel like, they might need to listen to you know four podcasts in four days or whatever. So we are cognizant of that, and we're trying to work through the schedule. But uh, Bayern Munich, uh, with their schedule being so condensed, we're 
we're working our way through it, trying to find the best formula to keep it going for you guys so that you uh, are able to enjoy these. So I hope we're fulfilling that for you. And uh, if not, let us know. As always, you can reach me at the Barrel Blog. You can get the site at Bavarian FB Works. You can get Tom Adams at Tommy Adams 71 You can get I Need No Name at BFWINNN. He has been doing some tremendous work, um, not just on the podcast, but on the site. So I want to give him a little bit of a shout, shout out. I don't get to do that enough for him. He's one of the unsung heroes of uh, BFW for sure. But uh, I also did want to mention this as well before I sign off completely. Uh, keep checking out Samarin. She's doing just some, some really tremendous work for us on the podcast. Uh, I always uh, enjoy listening to her preview shows. And in fact, I was a little disappointed that I had to do the Stuttgart one because I like listening to her previews more than I like listening to myself. So um, big, uh, big props to her for what she's been doing. And, you know, just the whole staff at BFW does a great job. And I'm not saying that because I'm the site manager. Um, I really do appreciate the job that they do on a week to week basis, day to day basis and covering all the Bayern Munich news all the Germany news and also trying to get some good opinions and analysis out there so that we're hitting all those little areas of coverage on the team. So great work by the staff. Thank you all for listening. We will see you next time.